0: This episode of 80 Days is brought to you by HarryBaby.com, the company that makes the funniest Irish-themed T-shirts. HarryBaby Baby shipped to 71 countries last year, and to celebrate its 10th anniversary in 2017, HarryBaby Baby aims to deliver to all 196 countries in the world by St. Patrick's Day 2018. You can help by ordering now from HarryBaby.com and use the promo code 80DAYS, that's 80DAYS, to get 10% off.
1: I am willing to wager 20000 I will make a tour of the world in eighty days or less. You accept? I accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eighty Days and Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by four history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me are...
2: Mark Boyle in Surrey, in the UK.
0: Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland.
2: And Aaron Barkley in
3: Richmond, Virginia, in the United States.
0: And today we'll be resuming our discussion of Cuba. If you somehow haven't listened to our previous episode, we'd strongly advise you to do so before you listen to this one. When we left off last week, Cuba had been independent for around 50 years, having seceded from Spain after the end of the Spanish-American War. In 1952, former president Fulgencio Batista returns to Cuba to run again for the presidency. Facing what looks like certain defeat, he stages a military coup and takes control of the country. At the time, American investments in Cuba both through commerce and tourism were heavy. Once back in power, Batista cozied up to US interests and wealthy landowners and was happy to profit off of those investments. Over time, many Cubans became unhappy with Batista's rule, and it's at this point that a young idealist named Fidel Castro steps into the picture. So Fidel Castro had grown up in, in Cuba, went to University of Havana in 1945, was the illegitimate son of a sugar plantation farmer, I think, or sugar farmer.
4: But he had a pretty middle class upbringing.
0: Middle class upbringing. Yeah. Him and his, his, I think, three brothers. I'm not mm, too but sure.
4: Raul is the important one.
0: Yeah. He was educated by uh, Jesuit priests, so mm. became a, a, a pretty religious guy during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, They influenced his thinking a lot as he was as he was a young man. Uh, Then he went to University of Havana in 1945 to study law. And the university at the time was a political hotbed. And there were like a lot of gang influences. This is like during the time of Batista. He Mm. freely admitted to carrying a gun around the Mm. university to protect himself. And there was a bunch of professors in the university at the time that were heavily nationalist and taught him to resent the U.S. influence and resent Batista, I suppose. So he, he starts to lean very heavily left while he's in the university and helps to organize student strikes and protests. He runs for student president at a certain point and, you know, kind of begins to covet the idea of uh, political life. And he hates the idea that uh, of this U.S. playground that we've alluded to a couple of times.
4: And appar- apparently mm. he wanted to run for parliament or something in the in the elections that Batista cancelled, and he kind of, he, did. he, he so thought he was he, entitled yeah. to this political career and it was stolen from him yeah. by
0: someone who already embodied things he hated. Exactly. So he was, he became a student of Marxism during his time in, in university. And I have a quote from him here. He was a uh, quote in 2009. He said, Marxism taught me what society was. I was like a blindfolded man in the forest who doesn't even know where North or South is. If you don't eventually come to truly understand the history of the class struggle, or at least have a clear idea that society is divided between the rich and the poor, and that some people subjugate and exploit other people, you're lost in a forest, not knowing anything.
4: I, I, I will dispute with you a little bit there, Luke. That there is some debate about how early he actually became a Marxist. Um, some people think some people think that in in at his in his younger years he was more a straightforward anti-colonial nationalist. Uh, mm-hmm. He was a revolutionary for sure, but he wasn't an ideologue. You know, he he wasn't like his his friend, who he'd meet, will come to later, Che Guevara, was a was a diligent student of Marx and Lenin, and believed it like a religion. Where I think it's disputed whether Fidel was always a communist or whether he came to that later.
0: Um- my, I, I, what i read indicates that he actually concealed it yeah he uh, definitely wasn't public about it. his revolutionary period he wasn't very public about it because there were so many supporters of him including his brother raul and che guevara who mm-hmm. mentioned were openly marxist yeah. and communist that he didn't want to, his revolution to be seen as a as a communist revolution and to therefore alienate people and that's that's why he okay. kind of concealed his beliefs but again i could be wrong but my you know based on his own quotes mm. He, he seems to f- have taken up Marxism at quite a young age, but just not uh, openly. Oh, been fully willing to embrace it I'll, publicly, I, I guess. I'll, I'll
2: come to it later, but because um, uh, I have a little bit about uh, Cuban un, under Castro. But uh, I, I did look quite closely at this period as well. And he does seem to be very much a political pragmatist, whether he did or didn't study Marxism in university and it influenced him and so on. It, it very well may have, but as you say, for, for reasons of not being public about it, I think also he, he wanted to have the option of potentially wooing the US. And yeah. he knew that if he came out as an out-and-out communist, that option was going to be off the table. Um, there, yeah. there, there is an attempt later on to, where he kind of sizes up the US. There's a, a, a stall between the successful revolution and then eventually his allegiance with, uh, his uh, alliance with the USSR of the time. But anyway, we're, but there's, there's we're, a brief we're getting window where he could have been a US ally. Sure.
0: Um, yeah, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So those, he starts anyway.
4: his movement, his real political movement in, in 1953 on July the 26th when he leads a series of attacks on Moncada Barracks, which is a, a significant yeah. military institution in in, um, in Havana.
0: And Yeah, so he leads about 100 men against the barracks and he's hoping to, to get weapons mm. to, to lead a revolution later. Yeah, to overthrow the government. But this was an absolute disaster. Oh, complete failure. Eight people were killed, 12 were wounded, and 60, including himself and his brother, were taken prisoner, and a significant number of those 60 were executed. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Uh, His life was spared thanks to the intervention of an archbishop, Mm -hmm. a Catholic archbishop. Which I'm
4: sure he later regretted.
0: (laughs) Yes, and Batista is so enraged by this attack that he calls for ten men to be killed for every one soldier that died in the in the attack. For reference, nineteen soldiers were killed in this uh, uprising, and that w- that would mean that you know Batista wants one hundred and ninety men to die as a reprisal right, for yeah. this. So that that kind of shows you the level of brutality that he had at the time.
4: Yeah, classic dictator syndrome.
0: Yeah. So he goes to prison. At his trial, he utters the words that will become one of his famous mantras. Uh, he says, condemn me, it doesn't matter, but history will ab- absolve mm. me. Mm. And him and his brother, Raoul are sentenced to 15 years in prison. He reads up more on, again, this is according to my research, he reads up more on Marx and Lenin and Marxism, communism in, in prison. And he writes his manifesto, his, his sort of lays out his political beliefs. He says, what a wonderful school this prison is. Here I can study the world and perfect the meaning of my life. This is quite, quite an optimist. Yeah, and he publishes a man- manifesto entitled History Will Absolve Me uh, from prison. He smuggles it out, I think, through his uh, his wife. He kind of smuggles it out page by page, and then she publishes it for Price. him. Okay. He ca- calls for equality, democracy, and after 22 months in prison, he is pardoned uh, under general amnesty by Batista because there was... Uh, political pressure on Batista to sort of stop to, to look nice murdering and imprisoning yeah. all of his opposition Yeah,
4: so this is when he ends up so Fidel and Raul Castro end up in Mexico City along with a load of other uh Cuban exiles and yeah
0: so in 1955 he, he, he kind of gets the bones of his revolutionary movement together in Cuba and then in 55 uh, Batista cracks down on you know left Left-leaning communist sympathizers and revolutionaries and this kind of thing, and he, uh, him and Ro think, yeah, we 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 should probably get out of here, and they flee to Mexico in 1955, mm. where he meets Che Guevara. In a fateful
4: meeting. Um, Guevara had just come from Guatemala, where he he'd sort of he'd been. I don't know if if you've seen or heard of the Motorcycle Diaries, which is a book about just wandering yeah. around South America finding himself as, it like, a 25, 26-year-old medical student. Hmm. Um, I should yeah. say,
0: actually, uh, just to insert here, Joe, uh, the Giants of History podcast has a yeah. great uh, five-part series on Che Guevara. Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, which I, is definitely worth listening to if, you, if you're interested in the man. We won't get too in-depth no. here about him, but, yeah, er, it's uh, you should check that out if you, if you want to learn Ernesto more. Ernesto
4: Guevara was a, an Argentinian, and he went out and explored South America and kind of gradually grew a political consciousness... Uh, I was reading the motorcycle diaries till I left it on a bus in Zurich, so I, I need to get another copy. Um, but it, it, he's another guy with Irish heritage. Yeah, he, right? his his mother was a Lynch, I think, or his fa- no, his father's mother was a Lynch from Limerick. Um, yeah. So uh. you know, Argentina is very diverse in that way.
0: His father often played up his Irish influence and his Irish blood, I suppose. And he said, he said the first thing to note is that in my son's veins flowed the blood of Irish rebels, <laughs> which is. Fair enough. Very nice. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
4: So um he he ended up in Guatemala and that was the first time he got involved in a revolution as a soldier, and he found that he loved it. And during that revolution, this is a revolution against um the president who'd been instituted by the US to support United Fruit. And he met loads of Cubans during this fight, including Nico Lopez. And Nico Lopez, when they moved to Mexico City, he they met each other again, and Lopez brought Guevara to this house where the Castros were having a meeting and Fidel and Che just hit it off immediately they spoke all through the night and he he signed up to the revolution like on that day there was a group of about 80 82 fighters including the Castros who were training in Mexico in Florida uh, former president Prio the one who thought he was the best president Cuba ever had even though he wasn't very good he was in exile in Florida, <laughs> and he raised money, which they used to buy a ship called the Grandma.
0: Not grand, not grandma, but the, the, uh, gra- grand-ma, grandma. Although it does sound very yeah. similar. Yeah, Grandma. G R A N M A. Which yeah. is
4: a, uh, uh, and they bought this boat. They loaded it up with arms. They had all their training done. Uh, They've been trained by a soldier from the Spanish Civil War, the Republican side of the Civil War. And in December 1956, these 82 guys make the treacherous journey uh, across the Gulf of Mexico to Playa Las Coloradas, which is, um, well, it's in the province of Cuba that's now known as Granma province, uh, in memory of this not grandma. epochal moment. Granma. Gra- Granma, not Granma.
3: Annunciation's important.
4: <laughs> no, it is.
0: Yeah, so he lands in Cuba and is immediately attacked mm. by uh, Batista's forces. Uh, they flee into the forest, into the interior of the island, and only 19 of them make it out of the... Did you say 82? Yeah. I have 81, Joe, I'm not sure, but yeah, around 80, guys. One fell over the overboard.
4: <laughs> made, and actually, one did fall possibly, overboard, and they had to stop and save him. There you go! That, 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 that's, there you go, well, that's well. where he went. So they ended up arriving when it was bright and that's part of why they were so brutally attacked by Batista like there were there was air attacks there was land attacks and yeah as you say only about 20 guys survived and they regrouped eventually up in the Sierra Maestra mountains uh, and started
0: that's not a good position to be in when you're hoping no revolution. when you like lose 20, yeah. 20 guys
4: like three quarters if your yeah. invading force of not that many people on day yeah. one yeah uh, but they get into the Sierra Maestra Mountains, they're joined by revolutionaries who are in situ in Cuba, and they begin a guerrilla war.
0: Yeah, they get help from locals mm-hmm. as well, and their their ranks sort of slowly begin to swell. Well, why would um, they shoot innocent guerrillas? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Somebody think Aww. of the animals.
4: Harambe! They're not the
0: guerrillas. Uh, so just to zip
4: through the revolution, because we could, we could do a whole podcast on it, um, but we're not going to uh th- there's a few important points happen so like in 1957 as castro's revolution is getting up and running another anti-communist student revolutionary group attacked the presidential palace but that was an absolute disaster and leaders were killed and castro actually i think condemned it too because they weren't his revolution um so that th- th- these guys weren't the only ones you're doing it wrong these guys weren't the only ones trying to overthrow Batista. It was He was grossly unpopular at this point. The more he cracked down on, on his opponents, the more opponents he had. In 1958, the US stopped selling arms to Batista and cut off relations with him because his crimes were becoming atrocities and they just couldn't wear it anymore. So they were willing to kind of support him as yeah. a... As a puppet dictator, but now it was just getting out of control.
0: Yeah, so they they embargo arms from both sides. So they don't they don't supply arms to Castro, but they they mm-hmm. stop supplying arms to yeah, Batista yeah. as well. They're just gonna go and Castro's
4: been doing fine.
0: Yeah, and then yeah, so this is around the time that it, it's looking quite likely that Castro is going to actually overthrow mm. the country, and the U.S. come in and instruct this guy General Cantillo to oust Batista. Oh, and he enacts a ceasefire, and within a few days Batista. He learns of a plot to arrest him, basically. And so this is around the end of December uh, 1958. So on the last day of 1958, December 31st, Batista flees Cuba with a few of his cohorts and over $300 million in cash. Just
4: mm. just on that, Luke. That's a spicy It's meatball. also important to note that the end yeah. of December is when <laughs> Che Guevara leads uh, his battalion and conquers the town of... Um, of Santa Clara. So the Battle of Santa Clara is happening contemporaneously to this this general's plot and is a decisive victory. They were outnumbered 10 to 1 but Guevara linked up with the other non-July 26th movement so the people who weren't affiliated with Castro and they basically the rebels have been occupying the east of the island and uh, Las Villas province is right in the middle and once they conquered that it was just a straight march to Havana. So this was a really important yeah. moment they had a decisive victory and Che was, his, his ruthless military leadership and his, his tactical thinking was why he became so beloved by, by post-revolutionary Cuba. And, um, as you say, Batista sees that the game is up on every front and there's a scene in The Godfather Part 2 that actually yeah. portrays this moment at the New Year's Eve party in Havana with Batista announcing to the room um, I'm leaving and all the americans just start walking out the room mid-speech going to find their private jets um getting on boats as the people in the streets start chanting you know viva cuba and long live castro and you know order starts breaking down and the the regime
0: ends but the thing about this is that the u.s is not super keen on castro no because as i think as we've already mentioned he he's got a lot of Communist support. Mm-hmm. He hasn't actually openly declared himself as a communist mm-hmm. uh, at the time because he still wants to maintain friendly relations with the U.S. But the the U.S. suspect that he is a communist. You know, it would turn out rightfully so. So they they order this guy Cantillo to appoint a Supreme Court judge as president. Mm-hmm. So this guy Cantillo comes out and says, "Hey, eh, here's your new president." And the people are like, <laughs> uh, <No>. "What?" <laughs> and Castro <laughs> Castro ends the the ceasefire uh, straight mm-hmm. away. And just marches into Havana and takes it on uh, January 2nd. After 25 months of his revolution, he is declared uh, the, the leader of Cuba. Oh!
4: But oddly, and I didn't know this until we started uh, researching, he appoints he app- he appoints a president who isn't him, a guy called Manuel Jur yeah. Leó, who was an educated liberal and uh, and a Catholic, and the idea of this, and he he wasn't a communist. And the idea of this was that this was to appease the US, to have a, a president that they could they could deal with, that they could accept. Um, mm. But within six months. He'd but just to figure had ahead, disputes right? with Castro, and he uh, he quit and emigrates to the US. There's a quote here from a, a wonderful program I found uh, from Public Access America, which is a, basically a news a news expose from I think 1960, maybe about why the revolution happened, and it's a quote from a soldier um, who realizes that uh, Fidel is a communist and he hadn't up until this point.
1: I am Captain Achilles Chinea. I was commander of the San Julián base in Pinar del Rio. I was chief of the army school there. When three communists were sent to teach at the school, I reported this to Fidel. This was last March. I then realised that Fidel too was a communist. I had to go underground and took refuge in the Brazilian embassy in Havana. After three months, I was transported to Brazil and then came to the United States. I am a member of the anti-communist Christian Front and the Alliance for Liberation. I am ready to join those already fighting Castro.
4: So there was a lot of uh, uncertainty about the nature of the revolution. Che Guevara started implementing agrarian land reform, redistributing any farms over a thousand acres were expropriated and given to the peasants. Uh, Land belonging to foreign companies was nationalised, companies were nationalised, and the Americans really start to see... The nature of this this revolution Just now. Just to
2: inter- uh, interject here a little bit, there there I mentioned this earlier. There, there's a period right after the revolution of a couple of months mm-hmm. where Castro still hasn't come out as being communist. He's still in the communist closet, as it were. Um, <laughs> and I saw this strange interview with uh, Ed Sullivan. He was like uh, like a Johnny Carson kind of you know nighttime uh, TV show guy, and he really went true. to to Cuba and. Uh, Um, So he went to to Cuba And there's this whole weird awkward interview With him and Castro And he's like Bigging up Castro and saying how great Castro is And at no point Does Castro like express his Great love for the US But he says a lot of very suspiciously neutral things Uh, And Ed Sullivan ends with We want you to like us And we like you it's really like, <laughs> hey, we, we, we know we were supporting Batista and all that stuff, but, you know, we can be we can be cool. And Castro visits uh, v- visits the U.S. in this period, in the first couple of months. Uh, Eisenhower, who was president at the time, um, he apparently goes golfing just so that even on the off chance he would bump into Castro, he doesn't want to be seen near him. hmm. However, Castro...
0: It's it's one of those awkward situations where you just don't want to run into somebody in public. Particularly
4: if he insists on wearing military fatigues and a hat at all
2: times. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, So Castro does make one meeting in the US uh, with a future president, Tricky Dick Nixon.
0: Yeah, VP at the time. Nixon Nixon met with
2: him. And at this stage still, no one knew he was necessarily communist, but everyone was really suspicious. Well, he actually said on that tour,
4: I know the world thinks of us, we are communists. And of course, I have said very clearly, we are not communists. Very clear.
3: Ah, yes. Well, that that took care of that. Thank you for, ex-
2: <laughs> thank you, sir. Nixon's quote on uh, on Castro is he is either incredibly naive about communism <laughs> mm. or under communist discipline. My guess is the former. <laughs> uh, not like it's uh, Nixon to suspect communists everywhere.
0: Yeah. Um, My I, I I watched a documentary about this period, and it was like. Um, Castro was asked what he thought about Nixon and he's like, yeah, it's all right. And then Nixon was asked what he thought about Castro and he said, he needs to be watched carefully. Sounds very Nixon-esque.
2: You're kind of talking about uh, that period when things are getting nationalized in Cuba. Mm -hmm. And I saw kind of, it, it can be viewed in two different ways. From the US side, Um, They see, you know, Cuba's going communist. They see that the government is harassing US businesses and they see that they're worried about nationalization with good cause, as it turns out. But the Cubans are worried about what the US companies are doing in terms of they are so nervous about everything, they start extracting all of the reserves and all the cash and everything Mm -hmm. useful that they have in Cuba and pulling that back towards the US. So for the Cubans, they felt perhaps like the US is is almost a kind of a semi-colonial power in terms of the resources they're taking mm-hmm. but also in terms of the infrastructure that they are dismantling out of fear of Castro so Castro felt like he had to get in there kind of fast and nationalize things yeah. like 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 real quick because otherwise all of the american infrastructure would be gone
0: the the description i heard about this which is a, an interesting one is that it's it was kind of like an economic colony of the US like there was yeah just so much, so many U.S. businesses and so much U.S. control on the island. It was, it was effectively controlled by the U.S. Uh, in terms of like economic interests. Mm-hmm. So yeah, as, as you say, Castro wanted to maintain the infrastructure and the the companies that were there. So just kind of nationalize them all very, very quickly to mm-hmm. make sure that they did didn't have a chance to sort of flee the island.
2: Yeah. yeah.
4: So Che goes on an international tour, building up relations with other places. It was also thought that maybe they wanted to take him off the Cuban stage for a while because he kept talking about Marxist-Leninism. Um, <laughs> mm. But at the end of all of this, we end up with a very strong relationship between the USSR and Cuba because as America completely turns, the possibility of America ever being an ally closes, you might as well cozy up to the other superpower uh, completely and open to well Yeah, well,
0: at, because I think largely because of Batista, uh, Castro realizes, because of how much money that Batista's mm. Uh, taken out of the country, uh, Castro realizes that he needs funding and yep. aid from a from larger somewhere. power, and-, and just
4: two little things before we move on to America's response. Um, we have Che is as uh, a medical doctor, Che Guevara is a medical doctor by training. So he publishes his pamphlet in 1960 called "On Revolutionary Medicine," and creates the idea of this public, mm. free uh, medicine. Uh, business. But he's hampered by half of all medical doctors fleeing to the US. So there's only 3,000 doctors left mm-hmm. on the island uh, in 1960. But this this is kind of a bedrock thing that the Cubans are very proud of. There is some dispute about whether their numbers, their statistics on health are reliable. Uh, obviously, all left-wing uh, agitators and, and activists say they're brilliant. All right-wing agitators and activists say they're low liars. Mm-hmm. The truth is Probably something in the middle. Uh, it seems to be quite a good system, but probably not as brilliant as the government says it is. Uh, because governments tend to not tell the whole truth. <laughs> and just the, one other thing is post-revolution you get a lot of people fleeing Cuba. Uh, middle class and upper class people for obvious economic reasons. But also um, Operation Peter Pan was a, a movement to to send children abroad. So they, it was facilitated by the Catholic Church to send children from Cuba to the U.S. to be raised by Catholic families in the U.S. and not by communism.
0: There's also uh, something that we didn't have a, a a big chance or much of a chance to mention. It's uh, like a large Chinese population. Mm. In Cuba, or there was yeah. a large Chinese population in Cuba at the time. We, we won't get too too much into it, obviously, but I just want to touch on it here. When
4: is, slavery was banned, they were brought in as workers.
0: Yeah, they were brought in as workers for the sugar plantations, that sort of thing.
4: So what did what did America do to try and... Uh...
3: Well, we, we did what was our habit at the time, and uh, really still is, and got involved in their business and tried to take over the government because that's what you do. When you're American. Um, no. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and the subject of governments not being completely honest, this was a tremendous embarrassment for everyone involved. Um, so that was the the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion, which, uh, spoiler alert, was a catastrophic failure. Um, and basically, it was a direct response to, well, a sneaky response to everything that y'all just talked about. You've got... Cuba cozying up to the Soviets, which made Americans incredibly nervous as, you know, Russia, the Soviet Union at the time was really far away. They were kind of this distant threat, but Cuba's right next door and the idea of them being buddy-buddy with the Soviets made us really uncomfortable. Um, Didn't particularly like the idea of communism in the first place. You had all of these... Back and forths. Um, and it all comes down to money. It's always about money. But you've got Castro, you know, endangering trade. He's trying to get his oil from the Soviets instead of from us. We're not into that. Um, responded with economic embargo. Castro responded by seizing and nationalizing US owned companies in Cuba, which we didn't take kindly to either. So it was just mounting tensions. Um, and finally, you have this was initially during the Eisenhower administration. He kind of nudges the CIA and says, hey, you guys have a really great track record for taking out unfriendly governments in this region and putting in governments friendly to us, which may or may not be good governments, but they're U.S. friendly governments. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. What? Let's let's do the same thing in Cuba because we're doing so well. And they went, sure, this will be just like Guatemala, just like Nicaragua, just like
0: you know the. Those guys love revolutions. Yeah, right? all, all of which turned out exactly.
3: Funny. It's yeah. all you know. Yeah. Everything's yeah. hunky dory. Let's let's continue this trend. So the CIA put together this plan. Um, it was this joint uh, air and uh, sea attack. You were gonna, you know, bomb the their air force and destroy their planes, then attack the beach. And the Bay of Pigs is a beach on the southern coast of Cuba. And everything was all set up. And then Kennedy was elected, and Eisenhower sort of said, "Hey, sir, Mr. Kennedy, sir, this is what we're gonna do." And Kennedy said, "All right." And I think there's there's a lot of discrepancy about why exactly this was as big of a failure as it was. I think Kennedy definitely took it on the chin, but mm. it's the CIA, and they're not very forthcoming with anything, really. So mm. the the details but the the the
4: But the, the manpower is mostly Cubans, right? Yeah, they, they started
3: in Miami, and they sort of said, hey, guys, do you want to overthrow your government? And they said, absolutely. So they started building this, this group in Miami, and you can't raise a foreign militia on American soil. That's kind of frowned upon. So they moved them to guatemala because you know guatemala was very friendly to the united states because we had put their leader in power so you had this yeah that'll help yeah you know they're very friendly um so you had this group that was being raised and trained pulling from all over you've got cuban uh revolution or cuban expats you've got guatemalan people you've got a few cia operatives but mostly it was cubans
4: and some of whom had fought with castro and then didn't realize he was a conflict. yes.
0: And they were kind of hoping to emulate the Castro mm-hmm. model, where it's like, hey, we'll land on the beach, and then a bunch of people will come, and, and then join we'll join us the mountain, and, like, yeah, and so we'll move throw west Castro together. We'll do
4: it all over again. Exactly. Revolution.
0: And really, exactly. it,
3: it, history suggests that this was a good idea. But what ended up happening? And I.
4: Yeah, well, it was. It's worked two or three times, right?
3: But eventually, <laughs> every every great plan, you know, law of diminishing returns. Eventually, it's it's not going to work. And in this case, it didn't work. Mm. Um, I won't go into the turn-by-turn the turn details, but basically they their initial plan was to, like I said, bomb their um, Air Force. So there was this initial airstrike, and they went hooray. And the reports that Kennedy got about the airstrike suggested it had been far more successful than it was. So he was like, great, go ahead with the invasion, land the troops, start fighting. Um, but the Air Force wasn't as crippled as they thought. So on the 15th of April, the, the bombers attacked. On the 16th of April, the photos showed, you know, you took a closer look at the photos and they went, uh-oh, these strikes weren't as successful as we thought. And the biggest issue for the U.S. in this was to have plausible deniability. They did not want anybody to say the U.S. is doing that thing again that they like to do where they're helping a government overthrow itself or helping rebels overthrow a government. Mm-hmm. So Kennedy's prime directive basically was do not let it be seen that the U.S. has been involved. So, when it looked like the initial air strike didn't go as planned, he said, and again, this is where reports differ. Um, but most sources seem to suggest that he said, "Call off the second strike. We cannot be seen to be involved with this. And there was a there's a decoy plane that I'll get into in a minute because it sort of be, it becomes relevant later. So you you didn't have the air support. And the plan that Eisenhower had drafted with the head of the CIA required ground and air support, and they they lost the air support. So that combined with um, miscommunications, you had CIA planes that were like an hour behind when they were supposed to be, and they didn't have air support. A lot of their ammunition got lost or wet. They thought that a coral reef was actually seaweed and couldn't land, just all of these things. that you know, independently wouldn't have been catastrophic, just it was a perfect storm of events. So you had this this catastrophic uh, failure of an invasion. There ended up being... Um, two hundred Americans or two hundred? Sorry, not Americans. Two hundred of the not Americans,
4: not Americans. Not yeah, Americans.
3: absolutely not Americans. No, America had nothing to do with this. Um, yeah. As, as as we have said many many times. Sorry, mm-hmm. two hundred of the um, CIA revolutionaries? sponsored revolutionaries, C- com-
4: com- <laughs> completely, you know, independent, self organized out of Guatemala. Yes.
3: Yeah. Anyway, two hundred of those folks were killed. Um, and almost 2,000 more of them were taken prisoner. And in the ensuing 20 months, there was a lot of debate about how we're we going to get the prisoners back. They eventually exchanged them for $53 million in food and medicine, which I guess you can divide that out oh. to find the approximate value of a human life. Um, more importantly, this was tremendously embarrassing. Oh for JFK, um, once it came to light that we had been involved, and the way this happened, so the, their plan had been to say, "This is just an uprising. This is just a revolution. We're going to take some of our old B-26 bombers and paint them to look like planes in the Cuban military, and no one will know what's going on." So they had this. They yeah. had this pilot whose name was uh, Mario Z- Zuniga, I think. I'm gonna. I probably screwed up that pronunciation, but what he did was they they nope. took his plane, they painted it to look like a Cuban army plane, they dirtied it up, they shot it up. And then he flew it um, away from Cuba, issued a mayday, and landed in Miami. So they could say, you know, look at this pilot that, that asked for asylum in America. It's, you know, he's a casualty of the revolution. It's an uprising. Oh, no. And they're flashing these photos around. So April 16th in the UN, the Cuban ambassador turns to the American ambassador, who's this guy named Adelaide Stevenson, and says... Y'all are attacking us. That's not cool. And Stevenson, who has been lied to within an inch of his life, is waving around these photos saying, no, no, look at these photos of this Cuban defector that we have. It's totally happening in your country. It has nothing to do with us. Because they totally hung him out to dry. And um, there's, again, this is...
4: Well, if he didn't know, he couldn't... He couldn't not, you know, he, he couldn't but tell the truth. Exactly.
3: And there's, again, disputed, but I I, intend to, I tend to believe it, that Kennedy referred to him as his, quote, designated liar, which is a horrible position for the guy to be in. <sighs> and when it came to light that, you know, actually this was a completely American-funded operation, and no one was really surprised. It was kind of like, it felt kind of like they were doing this weird dance where it's like, we're going to pretend like your plan worked, but really everybody knows it was you. Super embarrassing. And it kind of led to, I mean, in addition to really bad feelings and suspicion, it led to Kennedy's doubling down. And a lot of his presidency was about getting rid of Castro. And, you know, we got to get him out of Cuba. Cuba mm-hmm. really bad. Um, and the subsequent embargo and all that stuff, which y'all are going to talk about, was an outgrowth of this really embarrassing failed coup attempt.
4: I, I quite like that, that Che Guevara sent a thank you note to JFK. Yes. This is great. Uh, he kind of smuggled to and through an ambassador because, thanks for the Playa Giron, which is the Bay of Pigs, before the invasion, the revolution was shaky. Now it's stronger than ever. Exactly. Nothing unites
0: people faster than mm-hmm, a common mm-hmm. enemy. We've seen that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty embarrassing for JFK.
4: Yeah, yeah. So they yeah. the in the in, in in the aftermath of this, we get the trade embargo on Cuba, um, but not before JFK had ordered twelve thousand cigars for himself. Say
3: what you will about the man, he knew what his priorities mm, were.
4: He, he knew what he liked. Yeah. So he he sent out his aide to buy as many Cuban cigars as he could find uh so he 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 made sure the scars were on his desk and then he signed the embargo order uh, because it, it would have been illegal otherwise
3: exactly i wonder how many of those he got through in the next year because he didn't have as much time i think as he expected to to smoke them
4: mm. yes that's true that's a good good question mm. too soon sorry uh but it's a bummer <laughs> <Too soon>. yeah
2: <laughs> i'm I'm wondering if if Clinton discovered a box of those cigars. Oh, no. Definitely too (laughs) soon. Too topical. Anyway. um... Sex joke, (laughs) sex joke. Make a little sex joke about the president.
4: The embargo on trade with Cuba pretty much persists to this day with some changes. It's been loosened on some fronts recently, but since 1962, it's pretty much been a, an embargo on trade between the US and Cuba. And the same year, we get the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is remembered by many people of the correct age as the day we thought the world was going to end and we would all die in fiery nuclear death. Yeah, almost
0: certainly the closest um, we ever got to nuclear war.
4: Yeah. Like- yeah.
3: I want to sort of interject right here, um, if if I may. I was talking to my dad yesterday, who mm. was a teenager when all this was happening.
4: Yeah, and, yeah. Um, this was this was my mom, and yeah. yeah,
3: and it's like, hey, Bay of Pigs, pretty fucked up, right? And he's like, yeah, it was really scary, and then he just wouldn't really say anything else about it, mm. which I thought my dad loves mm. talking about this sort of stuff. So I don't know if he got distracted and walked away from his computer or what, but it's it was really telling that it was just like. That was No,
4: this was the most terrifying week for or fortnight for you know Everybody. for the Cold War yeah. basically. And I feel like we don't um, or
3: I certainly don't feel like I have the the perspective that they had That's it's like, yeah, this happened, this is history, this is crazy, but yeah, it was intense. So, so basically in,
4: in July of, of nineteen sixty two, um Russian Premier Khrushchev uh, had reached a secret agreement with Castro to install nukes on the island for defensive purposes. Uh, to install nuclear intercontinental missiles. Uh, In September, President Kennedy was shown photographs of these sites that were being built to house the medium and intermediate range missiles. And he publicly warned against an arms build-up. In October, he was shown even more advanced photographs that these, these sites were still developing and his warning hadn't been heeded Uh, Some people suggest he should just bomb the country now and flatten it and and start again. Um, Kennedy was a bit more cautious and he addressed the nation to make public the situation and uh, this this is what he said.
1: Good evening my fellow citizens. This government, as promised,
0: has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet
2: military build-up on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere
1: as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union.
4: And in response to this, he declared a quarantine on the 11th of October, which meant that all ships trying to enter Cuban waters would be stopped by American ships and searched, and if they had any offensive materials on them, like like warheads or or, um, any equipment for building a launch site, they would be stopped. Khrushchev saw this as a violation of the freedom to use international waters, which is a a declaration of war if you create a blockade. So the use of the word quarantine was very important here. We're very much walking a fine line of... Not a blockade.
0: Definitely not a blockade. <laughs> not a blockade,
4: and Khrushchev said this. This was an act of aggression which push man pushes mankind towards the abyss of world nuclear missile war. So we get to DEFCON three uh, in America. Um, when 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 the president of Russia says world nuclear missile war is close, you uh, respond. Apparently, in Russia, people are quite calm about it because the uh, news media was pretty life was already
2: pretty shit <laughs> like, this this sucks but also they they I only really had access to propaganda <laughs> so it's really cold here
4: <laughs> so they they knew there was a crisis between cuba and america um but they didn't realize how much russia was involved and that it involved nuclear weapons so um
2: There there was also, uh, in the background of this, there was also this whole thing with the U.S. flying spy planes over Russia, Yeah, these U-2 really uh, high-altitude aircraft, Mm -hmm. and I think one was shot down, and uh, there was an agreement for a while that the U.S. would stop flying these missions, and then the U.S. started again, so it it wasn't just all, you know... Coming from Russia, it was they were egging each other off. Oh no, it was it was it was
4: definitely point. like we learned a one sided version of this history, but it was it was two sides yeah. pushing off each other. It was it was you know the, the height of the Cold War, a lot of posturing right? um, and the arms race, and yeah, the way it all kind of wrapped up was back channel communications between the White House and the Kremlin, pretty much avoiding all other people, but there, it was oh. difficult to communicate. So we were talking with. The president of America sending sending telegrams to the Kremlin or going on the radio and announcing things, hoping the Kremlin's listening. Like there was no, yeah, there was no direct communication link, um, but there was a uh, an emotional late night telegram sent by Khrushchev, where he said to Kennedy, "If there's no intention to doom the world to the catastrophe of thermonuclear war, then let us not only relax the forces pulling on each end of the rope, let us take measures to untie that knot. We are ready for this." And he basically was proposing that everyone breathes and steps back from the whole thing and moves forward. Uh, Later that day, he sent a much more aggressive message to Kennedy. And Kennedy quite wisely decided to ignore the second message and respond to the first message and come up with a peace agreement. So his brother, Bobby Kennedy, the Attorney General at the time, and Russian Ambassador Dobrynin negotiated this last-minute fix whereby the missiles would be removed from Cuba and in return, but secretly, America would remove its missiles in uh, Turkey and Italy. But this wasn't to be made public, Yuck. so America would save face. So it looked like Russia
0: lost at the time. And also Castro was not consulted, which is an uh, important no. thing to note, I guess, for from our point of view on this podcast.
4: And suddenly Castro saw that he was... Cuba was just a pawn in this yeah it didn't yeah. it didn't matter to Russia it wasn't America. as
0: close to the
2: Russians as as he thought yeah exactly exactly
4: but this did lead to a lessening of the arms race and direct communication to, like the red phone between the White House and Kremlin was instituted as a result of this but yeah Che Guevara and Fidel Castro both felt very betrayed they would have happily nuked the world uh, to strike a blow against imperialism in their own words so great great lads yeah. great lads these <laughs>
2: fellas. great lads um
4: arseholes so following this in 64 Che gives a speech at the UN denouncing everything uh, racism <laughs> apartheid predicting I denounce that all, all revolutions it's, it's just, ice um,
2: cream the little cherries on the ice cream
4: yeah uh, so he he did that and then eventually he just left Cuba he got, got bored of being an administrator and went off to fight in revolutions in the Congo and in Bolivia and and eventually, fatally, in uh, Bolivia, where he was killed by by CIA-linked Bolivians. Um, but his par- parting note to Castro says something interesting about the revolution. So he said, In a revolution, one triumphs or dies. He was now going to fight in other revolutions, on new battlefields, but I will carry with me the faith you inculcated in me, to fight against imperialism, wherever it may be. And he points out that He's leaving his wife and children behind, and says, "I ask nothing for them, since I know the state will give them sufficient means to live and to educate them."
0: Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so he
4: really <laughs> believed in this. Uh,
0: yeah. He, he seems to be a guy that, like, again, I'd but, recommend people read more about him. We're not going to get too in depth hmm. here, but he seems to be a guy that was most at home during a revolution. Like, yeah. As soon as Cuba started to settle down and you know all the fighting had ended, yeah. he was like, bored. "I'm bored. I want to get out of here." <laughs> where 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 else is a revolution he, so
4: he did have some real successes like you know he he boosted literacy in only a couple of years from like the 70s to the 90s of 70% to yeah. 90% he was good at um, stuff his agrarian land reforms did decrease productivity um a lot of his um, manufacturing reforms as well weren't particularly successful so he was better at the education and health than he was at the economics because he never studied economics but uh, yeah, it's interesting. And I think they continued to produce uh, lots of tobacco and sugar and the USSR took a lot of the sugar. One other thing to mention about Castro is that he he really loved milk and milkshakes and ice cream and cheese to a really weird degree, like eating 12 scoops of ice cream after dinner kind of is that weird? Really,
2: is, is the ice cream why uh, Shay and him fell out? Maybe Shay was like, "I don't like ice cream." So, I so, declare against ice cream. And he, Castro was like, "Look, you, you said a lot of stuff with the ice cream. You're gonna need to go to Bolivia." He, he he
4: wanted to make Cuba have more ice cream flavors than America to prove their dominance. He wanted to breed super cows.
3: I mean, if you want to beat us, get us in the ice cream flavors for
4: sure.
0: Yeah, Whoa. exactly. Uh, hit that's, him! Hit him where it hurts. Where it hurts. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
4: He had a fight with his French ambassador by saying he wanted to make the best camembert in the world. And the French can not it's our thing. You can't make the best camembert. <laughs> and he only quiet, they only quieted the fight by by the ambassador pulling out a Cuban cigar and going, we can't make these.
2: Huh. All right? Did he you, call it Castro Bear? You can't make
4: camembert. <laughs> we can't make these cigars. All right? <laughs> <laughs> Tradition. Uh,
2: Castro Bear Castro Bear is also going to be my <laughs> <laughs> Halloween costume
4: this year, guys. Just guy. And the CIA tried to poison him by putting uh, botulism in a milkshake of his once. Uh, because he loved. That's uh, off
2: the secret someone. menu, I believe. So just on that, that I I got I got to like a raft Of little points about Cuba. Mm. I like um, the pun. Good work. From, you know, under under Castro. <laughs> uh, I, oh gosh, oh. <laughs> didn't didn't mean Cuba to make awful joke. Um, yeah. Um, so just you you led into the assassination attempts. There's a couple of things that everybody knows about Cuba: uh, old cars, uh, assassination attempts and uh, cigars. The assassination attempts were formally called Operation Mongoose, I assume, uh, with the idea being that Castro is a snake, we need a mongoose to catch sure. a snake. Operation Mongoose. Uh, JFK was really pissed off with how the Bay of Pigs went and kind of blamed a bit the CIA and the information he got from them for the failure of it. So he actually yeah, gave He fired
3: ju- everyone who was in
2: charge of that. He gave the job for this assassination to, to Bobby Kennedy rfk uh, basically holed up in florida with a, a bunch of guys and came up with ideas to to kill castro most of them super dumb like uh, like like the milkshake thing like the milkshake thing I, that has i've seen that repeated a lot and the what happened was they put the poison in a pill mm-hmm. and put that in the machine that was making yeah. the, the ice cream and the milkshake, and it got stuck on the freezer uh, in inside. And they found the pill later, and they're like, oh, it's just a milkshake we <laughs> gave him. Never mind. Um, there was also, you uh, know, there's so many of these. There's no way to know whether they're true or not. Here, here are some things that have been said that they tried to do to kill Castro. Uh, very famously, an exploding cigar, <laughs> a poison cigar, poison tea, poison coffee, poison diving equipment. I guess he was into diving. Um, poison ice cream slash milkshake, and one my favorite is an exploding conch uh, <laughs> that they were going to place in the seabed. And while Castro was diving down with his poison diving equipment, they'd blow him up with a, an explosive conch. It's all super dumb it's stuff. It's like they
3: got their assassination ideas from the Three Stooges
4: or or like early piece,
2: James Bond yeah. movies. Incidentally incidentally, Ian Fleming uh, Actually had a discussion With uh, JFK and ORFK About this And gave them some ideas About how they might kill Castro It didn't work no. According to the BBC There was over 600 plots wow. On his life uh, Not necessarily attempts but Did 600. anyone try to no, shoot uh, Castro <laughs> I expect you to die <laughs> And he's like, nope. Going to the cars, a thing everybody knows about. Um, as a result of the embargo, they weren't able to get new cars in from the U.S. They did get some cars in from Russia, but as everybody knows, Russian cars were crap. Uh, they were Ladas, uh, and they had some Lada engines and Lada cars. But in general, the, the cars, even today in Cuba, are uh, you know uh, Chevys, Buicks, Pontiacs from the '50s, uh, held together with you know chewing gum and sticky tape.
4: But they've gotten really good at um, at repairing. Old cars, exactly. Which is a skill that the West doesn't have. They
2: also have cameos, which are uh, truck buses, where they take basically a truck, uh, like a lorry, and they attach a trailer full of people to it. Oh. So it's like the body, the the, the people carrying element of a uh, of a bus stuck onto the back of a truck, and they're there today as well. You mentioned Shea went to some different countries, including Bolivia. The Cuban army were very active abroad. We mentioned them in our Namibian podcast because uh, they took part in the Angolan mm. uh, Civil War. Just to mention some of the countries is totally bonkers. So in the Americas, they went to Bolivia, Grenada, Nicaragua, El Salvador. In Africa, they were active in Angola, Somalia, Eritrea, and the Congo, and 1,500 troops Fought in the Yom Kippur War in 1973 Oof. between Israel and some of their neighbors. Yeah, they, they, the they joined up with the uh, Palestinian side. Uh, in Syria, they joined with Syria because Syria is an ally with Russia as well. Oh. So uh, it was 1,500 and, there, and, and, and it I think still also is. like. Uh,
0: I can't oh. remember the exact <laughs> quote from Castro. Uh, he basically he basically had a philosophy of if there is a revolution happening against capitalism, I want to be, be there. Here. Like I want to be involved and. And. Also, the Cubans were probably also in Vietnam,
2: although it's, it's hard to say anything about that clearly. They probably fought in Vietnam during the conflict with the US there as well. In the 80s, 90s, um, there's a, this is referring now to a, a Radio Lab podcast uh, called Los Frikis. Um, there was a sort of a, a cultural revolt against uh, the uh, overbearing nature of the Castro uh, dictatorship as it kind of became. And soldiers returning from Angola uh, were carrying HIV, and basically introduced HIV to to Cuba, pretty much in in the 80s. And you had these these guys who called themselves freakies, who were uh, punk metal music fans, and that was seen as like a huge rebellion against against the state to be fans of that kind of music. And as a as an act of rebellion, they would inject themselves with HIV. What Um I'll show them. Yes, they would inject themselves voluntarily with HIV as as the ultimate kind of F.U. To, to Castro. Uh, don't uh, I have a quote, quote from this. There is a quote from this. When you don't have any more doors to open, death is a door. Oh. Um, and there's a great podcast on this uh, in Radiolab. Okay. Uh, so just to reference and that.
4: In, in the 80s, you had a huge mass of people leaving Cuba. Yeah, the, the Mario uh, boat that's right? Yeah. yeah, and this was precipitated by hundreds of folks breaking into the Peruvian embassy looking for asylum. Um, there was a bit of a crisis. Castro didn't really know what to do, so he decided to allow people to leave for the first time. Uh, and during the next, I think the next year, or next couple of months, 100,000 people left Cuba uh, by boat to Miami. So you just have people gone out in pleasure boats and yachts and uh, anything that floated mm. from Miami picking up relatives and picking up random Cubans and bringing them back across. But as it went on and on and on, it became clear that uh, Castro had let people out of jail and out of mental asylums and sent them towards the oh, beaches. Yeah. Uh, and when this became public knowledge in America, it really affected public opinion about these refugees entering the US. About half of these people stayed in Miami, so it really changed the complexion of, of Florida.
3: And some say the fear of refugees lasts to this day.
4: Yes, it does.
2: <laughs> so the legend goes.
4: Thanks, Castro. Uh, <laughs> uh,
2: I guess we're kind of um, veering up towards yeah, and then
4: day. we get up to yeah, the modern day. So like it, yeah, in 1991, the Soviet Union collapses,
0: and we enter what's called the Special Period. Which is a very nice way of putting a very terrible, a ter- very terrible period. It's like Cuba
4: was just banjaxed. It was. It was basically. Screwed. It was yeah. a famine people's food intake dropped to a fifth of what it had previously been over the next couple of years. Basically, the USSR used to buy all the sugar, used to provide all the oil. They could sell off excess oil for profit. All of this ended. And so overnight, you have massive changes in the economy. Agriculture changes because there's no point growing sugar, no one's buying. So you turn to kind of subsistence farming. There are suggestions that the healthcare system was kind of changed into a for-profit system where foreigners would come and pay for healthcare and you'd use that to fund yeah. healthcare for poorer people. And the difference between what the foreigners saw and what the actual Cubans were getting is perhaps overlooked. Um, I, I've seen Michael Moore criticised for his documentary Sicko where he made Cubans' healthcare system look brilliant and a lot of people have said that was the one that the Americans got mm. when they came to visit with a film crew.
0: Yeah, during, maybe not. I just wanted to put in here during the during this period, uh, the special period, as you as you mentioned, Joe, just to illustrate how bad things got in in Cuba. They the Havana Zoo uh, suffered massively. They they ate a lot of the animals in the zoo, and even apparently domestic cats at, at a certain point Ooh. because people got so hungry during this famine because the the country was so economically strangled.
2: Just just to mention, there's something that. Kind of makes this a bit more complex, but um, there's a, an often cited uh, study about uh, the Cuban population during this period that their health, in many ways, actually improved from what it had been in the 80s oh, in yes. terms of things like uh, heart disease, and diabetes, and, uh, yeah. and diet-related uh, diet-related uh, issues and, and illnesses. So, you know, as much as yeah, like there was there was very little meat of any kind basically everybody became vegan out of necessity um and people you know there was health benefits associated with that well
4: silver linings and all that
2: uh, yeah um just talking a little bit more about uh, med- medicine um as joe you said it's you know it's totally socialized but you know they, they sometimes will um bring in people from other countries and, and you can pay um this medicine was also used as a one of like kind of as they used to use their military abroad as a, a, an expression of their their power. They have also kind of used their, their medicine for that since the 1990s. Uh, they provide more medical personnel to developing countries than all the G8 combined. Uh, that was from, I think, 2007, huh. I saw. They've, they've had uh, uh, medical professionals going to Chernobyl, uh, Haiti, uh, to, I think, Sri Lanka after the 2004 tsunami. Uh, they had they offered 1,500 staff, medical staff, to the US after Hurricane Katrina hit, which the US refused. And this is also a huge issue with regards to Venezuela. Cuba and Venezuela have, since Hugo Chavez uh, became premier there... Uh, have had a really close partnership where basically Cuba gets oil and Venezuela gets lots of doctors. Do- Cuba has provided 30,000 doctors and nurses and another 10,000 health professionals to Venezuela uh, for a hundred thousand barrels of oil per day going towards uh, Cuba. If, so if I
4: remember correctly, Cuba,
2: since Ch- the-
4: Chavez was treated there before he died, right in, in Cuban hospitals.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, because they're and the best part of what's happening. Uh, Venezuela is in a really difficult situation now uh, politically because the price of oil has dropped so much, and it's actually affected Cuba massively as well because their their wealth is Venezuela's wealth. So uh. they they are so closely linked that Cuba's really uh, economically since 2015 has been struggling with the, the low price of oil. Same as, you know, places like uh, uh, Russia uh, and other countries where, uh, you know, natural resources and commodities are the main source of, uh, main sources of wealth.
4: So, so, Aaron, there's a few things that have happened in, in sort of recent memory uh, in Cuba that might have been reported on in the States. Uh, do you want to talk about them?
3: Sure. So yeah, 2000. This six-year-old boy named Elian Gonzalez shows up in Miami, and he had been part of a flotilla of—I forget how many people—but one of them had been his mother, who drowned trying to flee Cuba to get to Miami, and he became this like a like a uh, like a flashpoint rallying point for America-Cuba relations, he became this face because he his father was in Cuba trying to get him back and his mother's family was in Miami trying to keep him here. And it was, I guess it was just, a, there wasn't a whole lot else going on in the news cycle because the whole country was just captivated by this adorable six-year-old boy and the big bad Cubans trying to take him back and the nice American family who was trying to keep him here so he could have a, you know, better life. Um, Again, the validity of that sentiment sort of remains to be seen. But it for me at least, I was 15 at the time, and it was really the first interaction that I had had with our our troubled past with Cuba. It's like we knew it was there, but here's this this symbol that we can all sort of rally around. Um, And actually, I looked him up doing research for this, and he's now 21 years old. He's back in Cuba. He's in the Cuban military, and He's still
0: He's going to become an engineer, right? He's studying engineering, I think. Yeah, he's yes,
3: what, what he him. wants to do. Yeah. Or that's what he's doing now and then he's going to be in the military, but he's, you know, he's just like right. I'm just a normal guy who happens to kind of be a hero for most of the population.
0: He was mm. taken back to Cuba eventually, right? Yes. Yeah,
3: his father eventually won that battle.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a there's a pretty terrifying again a documentary I watched about about this period like there's a pretty terrifying uh, few images that you can look up about uh, I don't know if it was like Marines or um, SWAT teams, or you know, is like a SWAT, SWAT team, team or something, or something. raiding yeah. his house mm-hmm. and kind of like dragging him out of a yeah. out of a closet or something. As a what is he eight years old or something at the time? Yeah, he uh, yeah, he was. It's a pretty striking image.
4: Yeah, and it it is a kind of post Cold War. There is this whole confusion about where people should be. Uh, like one person I came across is a Tupac Shakur's aunt. Uh I forget her name as Asante, I think her name is is a, a political refugee in in Cuba who the us desperately oh. want to put in prison for killing a state trooper and escaping from jail as part of the Black Panther group. okay And you know, there's all these people who have fallen out the US on political grounds and in Cuba and vice versa. there's loads of loads of former Cubans who were revolutionaries and terrorists in Cuba who are now living in the. US. So as part of the thawing of relations between Cuba and America, there's still a lot lot of things to be discussed. Um, As you said earlier, Erin, they're starting to allow rum and cigar sales again. Uh, That's just the first step. Tourism is becoming easier. Yes. Um, And I suppose a lot of this is probably down to Fidel Castro stepping down in 2006. Uh, because he was ill and his brother Raul is a bit more, um, is less hardline about about the anti-Americanism, I
2: think. You certainly get that impression mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. That definitely He's a helped. real softy. Softy Raul.
3: <laughs> I don't know to what extent that's true and to what extent it's just perception because he's not Castro.
2: Sure, yeah. And he's mm-hmm. also,
4: he's starting as an old man rather than starting as a young revolutionary, right. as, as leader. Yeah,
3: he's not killing people right off yeah. the bat. And it's it's definitely, like you said, it's a thawing yeah. of relations. We're still a little bit suspect, but, mm. you know, rum and cigars, right?
4: Yeah, and, um, and as I say, at the start of the revolution, there were, like, tens of thousands of people killed in military tribunals. So, like...
2: That was a, a a very emotive time. Mm-hmm. There, there was also work camps uh, that they were using, uh, imprisoning uh, uh, Cuban citizens uh, who didn't like Castro very much. So yeah. there, a lot of a lot of crazy and freaky stuff happened uh, as you know the Castros expressed their authority yeah. on the stage between you know the sixties, seventies, eighties. They were pretty overbearing. Uh.
4: But there's an interesting feature of the the recent negotiations between the US and and Cuba, which resulted in President Obama visiting in uh, 2014, I think, or maybe more recently, maybe it was last, Uh, 2015. So Obama
0: made the Uh, the speech that they were gonna begin normalizing relations in 2014. Uh, We'll insert a clip about that just here. Good afternoon.
2: Today, the United States of America is changing its relationship with the people of Cuba. In the most significant changes in our policy in more than 50 years, We will end an outdated approach that for decades has failed to advance our interests and instead we will begin to normalize relations between our two countries through these changes we intend to create more opportunities for the american and cuban people and begin a new chapter among the nations of the americas
0: yeah and part of that speech was that uh, cuba and the u.s exchanged uh, prisoners so this guy alan gross who'd been imprisoned in Cuba for five years was exchanged for a few Cuban prisoners in the US. And Obama announced Mm -hmm. that uh, the two countries would set up embassies. So Cuban embassy is gonna be established in uh, Washington and vice versa, US embassy is established in Havana. And then in 2016, we had Obama actually visit uh, Havana and he was the first Mm. sitting US president to visit Cuba in 88 years, which was a pretty historic event.
4: And, and biz- bizarrely, a big catalyst for, for these secret talks that led to this cooling or thawing of relationships was Pope Francis, mm. yep. who Raul Castro saw as someone he could do business with. He obviously has a big interest in Cuba, which has a largely Catholic population, even though the Communist Party discourages religion. And Obama and Francis are on a similar page in their view of, of the world, it appears. They, they both seem to quote each other regularly enough. So he he facilitated these secret talks, and there's there's an account in a BBC article about um, Raul meeting the Pope in Rome, and coming away from it essentially saying um, that he would consider starting to go to church again and praying again because you know when when the Pope visits visited Cuba, in twenty fifteen I think, he uh, attended all the masses and it kind of brought me back to my Jesuit school days. Um, so again, he's showing a, a softness that Fidel doesn't.
2: I was thinking that uh, Castro's education at the hands of the Jesuits must have been pretty bloody hardcore to get him to ban Catholicism for that many decades as he did. <laughs> they must have
0: really effed yeah. him
4: up. Good Lord. No, it was just the, the opium of the people kind of thing.
0: And then in November 2016, the Cuban people witnessed uh, witnessed the end of an era. Welcome back to our coverage of the death of Fidel Castro dead overnight at the age of 90. They're celebrating on the streets of Miami's Little Havana but it is a much different scene in Havana Cuba and that is where Hannah
1: Berkeley is this morning. Many Cubans right now are waking up to the news that former president Fidel Castro has passed away at the age of 90. The news came in many forms late last night. Many Cuban youth were out on the streets socializing as they do any weekend night, uh, the news came via phone calls, uh, many, uh, many family members from abroad calling, telling them the news. Uh, they could hear partying going on in Miami, but the streets of Havana looked very different. There's a much more solemn mood. So,
0: yeah, that clip there was from ABC News. And that was, of course, last year's uh, death of Fidel Castro, which was, of course, a, a massive moment for Cuban history. Uh, The architect of the revolution has died. At the age
4: of 90 years, um, surviving massive amounts of cigars, incredible amounts of milk, and hundreds of assassination attempts to to die of old age um, in retirement in the country he created.
0: Yeah, I was reading about this earlier, and there were so many countries that declared uh, national days of mourning, among them uh, Algeria, Bolivia, Equatorial Guinea... Nicaragua, uh, North Korea even, Venezuela, Namibia, who we've covered before, Uruguay, who are also in our back catalogue, Vietnam, Angola, uh, Trinidad and Tobago, Haiti, uh, yeah, just so many different countries. Mm -hmm. Uh, Algeria, actually, with whom uh, Castro and Cuba had a very uh, special relationship. They, They sort of saw themselves as sort of brothers in revolution i suppose uh, they declared eight days of national mourning which wow. i thought was incredible for the death of someone who is not even from algeria you know it's uh, yeah sure that's uh, that's a lot of so, days
4: so to, to his death a very well respected figure in the kind of countries you'd expect to respect a, a revolutionary left-wing figure
0: Exactly, exactly. You got Nicaragua and, you know, uh, Uruguay in there for obvious reasons Mm and uh, North Korea. Um, Yeah. So do you want to give us some insight, Joe, into how the news was received in the US of Castro's death?
4: Um, I suppose the most significant thing is that the Cuban exiles would have celebrated this when it happened. Um, So particularly those living in Florida... We're not big fans of Castro, having fled his regime, and so you heard in that news clip, or then and in in that clip, they went on to talk about how how happy people in Amer- Cuban Americans were about Castro's death,
0: which is quite the opposite reaction. Yeah, they were somewhat hopeful for a change, right? Mm,
4: yeah, and um, I suppose an interesting postscript to to that is that in the twenty sixteen American election. Um, one of the constituencies that really backed the candidacy of Donald Trump uh, was the Cuban American vote in Florida, uh, which sort of confused people mm. because most most um, Hispanic voters in the U.S. would have been supporters of the Democratic candidate, but Cuban Americans and there were two
0: people running in the GO- on the GOP side who were of Cuban descent, right?
4: Yeah, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, right? Um, yeah. So. Th- the Q- Cuban Americans have, have, have traditionally been Republican supporters uh, because of their strong resistance to left-wing ideas. Uh, and it kind of makes sense when you look at it from that, that, point, that point of view. But as a result of this um, dependency of Trump on, on that vote, he is actually, just as we're about to release this episode, he's starting to roll back some of Obama's uh, thawing of relations. So it remains to be seen how that
0: all mm, goes. Re, it, refreezing, if you will.
4: Yeah, it sounds like a yeah. lot of. Um, it's 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 not as big a deal as he wants it to look. He wants it to look like a stronger move than it actually is. Uh, there will still be um, mm. cruise ships and direct flights will be able to go. Uh, there's still be some trade, but there's going to be restrictions on travel again. So it remains to be seen how that plays out and and that moves beyond the realm of history uh, into current affairs. Um, but and also which is not our bag <laughs> no but it's also we're mentioning that um we're coming up to the end of Raul Castro's tenure oh yeah he, this is his second five year term and he signalled again um, in, in, in the week before Trump's began rolling back these um these agreements he made clear that elections are coming uh, in the next year or so and that he will be succeeded uh in around 2018 by someone who is not a Castro and the most likely candidate is his deputy Miguel Diaz-Canel who at 57 uh, did not participate in in the revolution and so this will be a a real change in Cuban Cuban life going forward and who knows whether it will lead to modernization or opening relationships with the US or, or maybe doubling down on some stuff. We just we can't predict that but times are changing in Cuba
2: a quick word on uh, sports yeah Uh, Cuba is super keen on baseball it's their number one sport and in 2014 there were as many Cubans as Canadians in Major League Baseball they have uh, 77 gold medals Mm -hmm. in the Olympics 37 of which are for boxing half of their boxing medals are gold so they they do really well at the boxing and also they're quite keen on cricket because they have a lot of uh, Caribbean immigrants and there are uh, approximately eight adult teams in uh, in Cuba today uh, playing cricket. So, because it's a little like baseball, but it's, uh, it's also getting closer to their Caribbean neighbours. Apparently Castro was quite keen.
4: Alright. And a baseball, uh, loads of the baseball players who are good defect to the US. But it's worth looking up the stories that we won't go into here about, like, Cuban baseball players who get smuggled out of out of uh, Cuba by cartels through Mexico and has sold to baseball teams. It's all Mm. very under the radar and confusing. But uh, we got Aroldis Chapman who defected while the national team was playing in the Netherlands, went off to play Major League Baseball. And Yassiel Puig, more recently, um, has a very complicated journey through organised crime to get there. Uh, I'd just like to mention something a friend of mine saw while he was uh, visiting Havana. So... Havana apparently looks like the cars look old, but elegant. So the buildings look old but elegant, kind of the ruins of a former glory. They they still look like the American playground, but just older, and more run down. Mm. And it's kind of a sense of a former glory hangs over the place. But what you also get is this. I mentioned how Catholicism is popular, but it, also very significant is this um, Afro-Catholic syncretic religion where elements of Yoruba religion were mixed with Catholicism to give this religion called Santeria, which was popular among slaves, uh, where essentially the Yoruba gods are disguised as saints or orichas, And they are asked for guidance and help in life in a much more religious way than saints would be. And sometimes this involves animal sacrifice. of so my friend said to me, uh, by by pure chance, I saw some Christian syncretism while I was there. Uh, a chicken was killed and its blood was let into a river. Then questions would be posed to the relevant spirit through an intermediate who acted as an interpreter. Apparently it's not that common anymore, but I did see more of the like on the trip. So this kind of Afro-Cuban um, culture still persists. You still get a lot of Afro-Cuban music like salsa, rumba, all that kind of thing that are very iconic. Um and we may not have given enough emphasis to the influence of that the, the 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 racial diversity of the island has on its culture
2: just just on that actually joe i was i was i was going to mention it but the, i came across this bizarre thing um that people from the east of cuba are referred to as palestinos like palestine um and it's a term for people oh. who are non-Havanans, people from the east of, of Cuba. And fr- from looking at the revolutions and so on, they all basically started in the east and they struggled to, to foment rebellion yeah, yeah. in the west because that's kind of seen as it's like uh, the, the establishment, the pale, the you know, it's the, mm. the, the moneyed, uh, sort of more white influenced area. And um, in the east is a larger black and mestizo populations, uh, and it's based around Santiago, the the second city and formerly the original original capital. Mm -hmm. I found this this quote uh, talking about the levels of racism in Cuba against other Cubans from the east of Cuba, uh, from the area known as Oriente, which just means east. And the quote is to be black, eastern and shit is one and the same thing. Uh, talk, yeah, just that there's a huge amount of internal racism in Cuba between people from Havana and people from the east of Cuba. All right. So, despite the communist revolution's re- efforts
4: to create equality between the races, they maybe haven't succeeded. Exactly. And Erin, you were saying you were saying to us that you were in you were having lunch in a Cuban restaurant yesterday before we started recording. What, what, I did. Yes. What, what did they
2: eat?
3: Um. I don't know what they eat. I know what I ate. It's one of those, I assume it's authentic kind of cuisine. um, (laughs) But who really knows? I had a Cuban sandwich, which, you know, and a lot of people think Cuban, they think spicy. uh, And they're very quick to remind you that it's not. It's flavorful, a lot of meat, um, a lot of salsa, uh, fried plantains are a thing that they do at that restaurant. Again, I have no idea how authentic any of this is, but it is absolutely delicious. Hmm. And next time you guys are in town, we'll go.
0: Alright, uh, unless anybody has anything else to add I think that's probably a, okay. a good enough place to wrap it up we, We've definitely been talking for a while Cuba, quite a quite a, a history dense place I guess. Cuba, and a nation so much, of contrast <laughs> So much stuff uh, that we did not get revolution
4: to after a Revolution after a revolution after yeah. revolution and it's, we didn't even get to talk about Guantanamo <laughs> That's true, Thank we God. never even
0: mentioned Guantanamo yeah, uh, yeah. which is a whole Guantanamo other okay. quagmire that we probably shouldn't sure. even get into um, super yeah. interesting maybe that's Ready a to mini it. podcast
2: we can do Guantanamo Bay.
0: we'll wrap up our episode there for today if you're still listening uh, we'd really appreciate uh, a rating god or a review you. on iTunes god help your uh, damned soul yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that, that, that's the main thing that you can do to help us uh, spread the word about the podcast uh, boost our visibility a little bit so we'd really appreciate it if you could tell your friends leave us a review you can find more about uh, the podcast at 80dayspodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter under the same name. Joe, where can people find more about you on the internet?
4: They can find me on timetoburn.com, where burn is spelled n e.
0: And Mark? Uh, I have a
2: blog called Toner of Leak, and I'm on Twitter at, at markboyle 86
0: And Aaron, where can people find you on the internet?
3: I mean, they, they really can't. I've been thinking about getting a Twitter. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're, All you're right.
3: somewhat of an <laughs> Sorry, was, don't bother. I was thinking. Don't bother, guys.
4: <laughs> just, just, you know, mail something to the podcast, and we'll pass it on.
3: Yes, they will read it to me over the internet. Um, if you search for at Aaron on the Rocks, you will probably find anything related to me. Just go to her house. Just please don't go to my house.
0: <laughs> All right, cool. Cool. Uh, you All can right. find me at. I am
2: at your house. <laughs>
0: You can find me on Twitter at the Luke J Kelly or on my website lukejkelly.com. We also have a few people that we need to thank this week. First of all to our season long sponsors, Harry Baby. You can get 10% off anything on their site by using our special promo code 80days. We also want to say thank you to two of our recent Kickstarter backers, Andrew Brogan and a mysteriously named Crystal who apparently doesn't have a last name. Thank you guys so much for your very generous contributions. And finally, we want to say thank you to Aaron for being our very first guest on the podcast. Thank you thank so you much. Aaron.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.
4: Bye. Bye.
1: nation is completely bankrupt. We have no choice but to abandon communism. Aww. I know, I know, I know, but we all knew from day one this mumbo-jumbo wouldn't fly. I'll call Washington and tell them they won. But Presidente, America tried to kill you. Ah, they're not so bad. They even end the street after me in San Francisco. It's full of what? Presidente, three men are here to see you. They claim to have a trillion-dollar bill. Ay, caramba! Oh, so the island's not for sale, eh? Well, will you at least permit us to live in your socialist paradise? You're talking about Cuba? Exactly. All we ask is preferential treatment because of my fabulous wealth. May I see? (laughs) See with your eyes, not with your hands. Please, we are all amigos here.
0: Mr. Burns, I think we can trust the President of Cuba. Now give it back. Give what back?